You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here are your hosts, Carlos Devings, Matt Smith and Neville Bounds. Well, hello and welcome to episode number 252 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carl Stebbings and joining me in the PTUK studios again this week is my co-host Matt Smith. I told you, don't talk to me, I'm very busy. Okay, so Matt's had a very busy week, he's been driving uh, coaches, buses, Um, he's uh, done a few parachute jumps and stuff. Um, he's been to uh, to Brazil and back twice, uh, so well done. Thanks for that. Yeah, and yeah. also joining us from uh, his stately mansion over in Buckinghamshire, a place where we'll be travelling to tomorrow for our PTUK board meeting. It's <laughs> Neville Bounds. Hello, everybody. Welcome. And uh, yes, Matt's having a slight technical meltdown at the moment, but uh, that's not very unusual so i think we could probably get away with it what do you or, mean or not very lost. unusual hang so, on i'm slightly uh, offended <laughs> <laughs> how are things are you nev very good thank you uh yeah. had a very busy week at work again uh car passed its mot yesterday so that's a good thing ah, uh took the cat down it, 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 yes took the cat down the vet so obviously you get a bill for that don't you right yeah. yes yeah now the, now the question <laughs> I, I do have one question to ask was the bill for the banana uh more or less than the bill for the cat <laughs> Actually, yes. In fact, the, the banana was £54 and the cat was oh. 98 oh. Right, so there we are. You see, oh, there you are. <laughs> there we are. Yeah, absolutely. God. So, that, uh, um, so all, it uh, had a nice little uh, uh, session in the garage then, uh, Nev? Yes. It's, uh, it's second MOT because it's four years old now. Ah, and it flew gone. through. It did, yes. Yeah. Um, spent a bit of money on it uh, the last service, but uh, that's all, all good to go for another year, I'm pleased to say. Excellent. So joining us uh, from uh, his on-location area, it's uh, an awesome friend and very good uh, contributor to the show, to this show uh, for all things grey and military. It's the amazing Armando. Hey, thanks. Uh, hi, everybody. How's everybody doing tonight? We yeah. good? Yeah, all good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've got a bit of a problem with your video there, Armando. So if, perhaps if you could just turn the video off and just, um, we'll just run sound audio. All right. Yep. Cool. No Leave problem. it with me. I'll, I'll work something else out. <laughs> Maybe so, take the lens cap off your camera. No, no, it's me. It's it's me having. I'm having one. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm having one of those shows. All right, it's going to be one of those. If we get to the end of this without having to redo anything, it'll be a blooming miracle. <laughs> hey Matt, watch out! There's an airplane behind you. Oh, oh. moving on. Uh, next. <laughs> so, how how are things with you, Amanda? You uh, been uh, doing much flying lately, or are you uh, sort of uh, working hard somewhere? Yeah, not not a lot of flying uh, as a pilot, but uh, I'm here, <laughs> would you say on location? I'm on location in, in southern Germany right now. It's beautiful. It snowed last night. Um, pretty much at the southernmost part of Germany down by the Alps. So it's uh, the rest of this weekend should involve some skiing. Uh, but yeah, other than that, the holidays, since a lot, since the holiday show, a lot of uh, podcasting. So first of all, I got married. So, as you do, as you do, <laughs> as you do. Yeah, right. So I had to finish out the year strong. I got married on New Year's Eve. My lovely co-pilot Megan, who is probably listening right now. Oh, hello, um, Megan. Hello. But that was in Charlotte. While I was in Charlotte, uh, Megan and I got the chance to meet up with Steph. So Steph took us to a local brewery. Had some awesome beers that. As you guys know, that uh, the beers in North Carolina and the microbreweries are way stronger. So about after four of them, we were 
figuring out all the words, the world's problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a bit of a state. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, probably most importantly, I had a really nice lunch up in. Uh, what is it? Where, where were we? So oh. with. Uh, we yeah, we uh, we had a little meet up uh, with Armando last weekend, last Sunday, wasn't Indeed. that? And yeah. uh, we went to one of our local eating establishments where we had a proper English carvery uh, where I think uh, we all sampled various uh, meats uh, on the platter there, beef, there was meat, gammon, yes, turkey uh, yeah it was definitely a, a, a well it was a damn good carvery I'm, I'm guessing yeah, you've you... not been there bef to eat before had you actually, you, you were pleasantly surprised no, you? no it was very yeah. nice but I should be going back yeah as I say myself and mother are very sort of fussy about mm. uh, carveries after many years of running a pub so it's uh, yeah, it was all about sort of trying to find somewhere nice. You, you, when you've got royalty visiting, of course, you've got to make oh, sure you have to take to the best place. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, date and time check then. It is the 18th of January. It's Friday. It's just coming up to five past seven in the evening. We've got uh, loads of people, uh, people, people, people in the chat room this Spray evening. That again, if you like. All the uh, yeah. usual family members in there, as always. We've got, uh, I can run through the list here. We've got loads of people in there this week. We've got Auntie Liz is joining us in the chat room this week. Uh, Captain Nick is also in the chat room. Uh, we've got Masha, she's in the chat room. Neil Landwarn, uh, Armando's in the chat room as well. Good, good. We've got Yama Saku, who's in wow. Japan. So greetings Ooh. to you in Japan. Uh, we've got uh, Richard King, hello to you, Richard. James Can Draw, hello, James. Uh, Tony S, uh, Graham Haley. Uh, Jonathan Warren has also joined us this week. He's obviously uh, taking time away from being on the uh, flight line at uh, Fairford. <laughs> and uh, we've got, let me scroll, Richard King. Who have I missed anyone out? Main Man Micah, our blue spanner of death. He's in there this week. Uh, Jenny in Rome, our prize winner uh, in uh, Rome. I she's, think she's just um, visiting briefly. Though, she's visiting she briefly. Yeah, she's dinner. got something, yeah. something on this evening. Richard Adams as well is in the chat room. Pilot Pip has joined us in the chat room as well. Oh. Uh, this week and we've got a segment coming up actually later have, on the yes. show from Pilot Pip uh, his first one of 2019 and um, I think I hope I've got Chris Griggs is also in the chat very room good, Tanya W is in the chat room my blimey there's lots of people Rick Bell hello Rick Bell is also in the chat room um, I hope I haven't missed anyone out. No, I don't think I have. No, we're all there. Great. Excellent. So thank you everyone for joining us this evening uh, on this uh, lovely chilly Minus something or other outside <laughs> Friday evening. It is, it is that time, yes. It absolutely. is that time of the year, yeah. 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 We don't get uh, white, uh, white uh, Christmases anymore. Which no, is kind of a, no, not a January thing. No. So like I said, we've got a segment from Pip coming up on later in the show. We've also got some military news this week, which has been compiled by uh, our guest Armando this week. And he's uh, he's kind of taking, taking the uh, military segment uh, to whole new levels now for us. So well done to you, Armando. And, uh, yeah, that's about it. So, uh, Matt, if you are... <laughs> Just stall for another stall minute. Stall for another <laughs> minute, okay. <laughs> Actually, on the note of uh, Christmas prizes, um, we have just waiting on Tony Kinsley to get in contact with us at the show. Uh, we've still got your prize here, Tony, the uh, Air Crash Investigation box set. If you could give us drop us uh, an email to let us know where you want us to send that prize, uh, we'll get that way to you straight away. We've had um, a picture sent in from one of the prize winners, uh, Tony S, who who won the Dam Busters book, and uh, he sent us in a photo of him uh, with the book. So thanks for that, Tony. And yeah, hope you all enjoyed uh, all enjoyed your prizes. So there we go. So Nev, hello, hello. <laughs> 
You said uh, you said yeah. we've got we've got some uh, big plans for this year. So while Matt's sorting out some feeds there. So we've got some big. Well, yes, we, we have, and uh, I've I've been uh, have a couple a couple of notifications in the last uh, week or so about some things that we might want to do uh, outside broadcast stuff and mm, uh, some good. filming and some interviews. Um, we'll tell you more about it when we've had a chat between the three yeah. of us. Uh, but I, uh, there's there's a lot of good stuff coming up this year, and um, as always, it's all a bit weather dependent, of course, uh, if we're going outside to do things. But uh, really looking forward to it. It. and uh, yeah 2018 was a great year for lots of uh, content um, and uh, of course last week we played out the final episode of the Sir Richard Johns interview uh, that's been very well received indeed and I sent uh, all of them to the man himself to have a look at and he is delighted with them also so that's uh, that's very nice indeed so uh, yeah lo lots more to come during 2019 and the good news is is armando is uh, is going to become uh, quite a big part of the show aren't you armando you're going to join us and become our kind of uh, our go-to guy for military aviation news and uh, you're going to kind of uh, sort of be a, be our uh, eyes and ears at the air shows across in the u.s this year <laughs> Yeah, well, if given the opportunity to join the PTUK team in any capacity, I, I don't oh. think anybody would really pass it up. So if you guys offer it up, I'll... Uh, there, are lots of, there are lots of people who pass it up, yeah. to be fair, on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and on that note, actually, we've, uh, this week we've, we've, I've got, we've got some new PTUK uniforms being produced oh, uh, for us. And uh, Armando's got, he's got his very own uniform okay, being You can stop actually. stalling now, I'm ready. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm quite quite looking forward to that because we are we're getting sweatshirts this year, which is quite nice. We didn't oh, we? we haven't had those before, so we're going to have Ooh. sweatshirts each, which that's will be quite exciting. Nice. Ro in royal blue, I think. Right, we're getting so well, there we are. Nice. So we are going to kick off the show and start things as we always do each week with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if you're ready, Matt, I, I actually am. Yes, yay! <laughs> And if you're ready, Nev, I've been ready for hours. Yeah, I see. I'm blaming Nev because I was going to sort this all out before we started, but he was so adamant oh. that we started on time. But anyway, yes. And uh, if you're ready, Armando, well, I'm on European time, so I was at ready an hour ago. Oh, Yay! I, I Let's go. Now. So, kicking off this week's first news story on the AOL.com website, and uh, I did have to look a few times to see if this story was actually true, and it is actually true, because it's on many websites. Ah, yes, it's on the BBC, actually. And it was on the BBC, yeah. yeah. And, if it's on the uh, BBC, it must be true. It must be true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the headline is, Family Forced to Sit Down on the Floor During a Flight Due to Airline Mishap. Hmm. Mm. So a British family were returning home from vacation and were forced to sit on the floor during a TUI Airways flight uh, due to what the airline claims was last-minute scheduling mishap in June. Uh, Paula Taylor of Alchester, Warwickshire, told the BBC's show Rip Off Britain that she and her family arrived three hours early to check in for their flight uh, from Menorca, Spain to Birmingham here in the UK to ensure they could all sit together. 
Uh, she told the show that her and her husband and their 10-year-old daughter all received boarding passes uh, marked for rows 41, seats D, E and F. But when they boarded the aircraft, there was an empty space where their assigned seats were. What? <laughs> they looked at each other in, a, in well, amusement to see yeah, what was going say, on here. Yeah. And the couple's young daughter was eventually given the last free seat on the flight while uh, her, the uh, Taylor and her husband were offered uh, two spare flip-up chairs meant for crew members. However, once the aircraft had taken off, the couple were forced to vacate the area and sit on the floor of the aircraft so flight attendants could access items stored behind the seats. It's hard and uncomfortable and it's just filthy, Taylor said. Unconventional seating arrangements are not good. It's just not an experience I ever want to repeat. Uh, she said she contacted the airline immediately after the incident with photo proof of what had happened, uh, but was offered 30 quid, or Ooh, around steady. $38, as a goodwill gesture for the inconvenience. The company later offered the tailors a full £1,300 refund after it was contacted by the show here in the, in the UK called Rip Off Britain, which is a BBC show, isn't it? Yeah, I think. that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the airline, a uh, German airline, uh, later blamed the mishap on a last-minute air aircraft change and said it would be further investigating the incident that's uh, a bit, bit bit scary really isn't it? having it to is. uh, to sit on the floor I'm, I'm really sure how that's legal I, I think I think uh, actually it doesn't say this in this article but uh, it, as I say this is one that I read if you read the BBC article I think actually what happened when it came for takeoff and landing they were actually sat in the jump seats is that correct that's correct is that yeah. what they're called yeah. jump seats the crew um, seat crew yeah seats, in the crew yeah. seats so basically yeah. they had to sit in the crew seats while the crew went somewhere else because I think there was some more down the other end and the only reason they in fact well I say in fairness they shouldn't have been asked to sit on the floor they should have made <laughs> other arrangements but uh, the, they were only asked to sit in the floor while service was was occurring because obviously the, they were then in the way of getting the trolleys and the the carts yeah. and everything all out to to do stuff so i think in their defense that's from a safety point of view they weren't uh, but then uh, to be fair if there'd have been turbulence and stuff i mean really they yeah. would need to then be back in those seats wouldn't they so i've had this happen to me once before uh, it was a few years ago now when um obviously with certain airlines you can pre-book your seats mm. on the aircraft when you go online you can book yeah. a specific seat that you like most of us like to use seat guru to find a good seat these days and uh, when we got on board the aircraft uh, the tickets had a site or gave us printed tickets uh, at the check-in were for different seats and this was because the aircraft like it says here the aircraft had uh, changed and aircraft can vary with seating arrangements so it's not always got the the seats that you've pre-booked or um so it does happen it, not very often i don't think but it does happen so uh yeah what do you think nev yeah i think it's just, i think it's probably a bit unfortunate but of course if as nick points out in the chat room if, if there was any turbulence going on then that could be quite a big thing because uh, yeah. obviously everybody has to sit down uh, but uh, i know this is the wrong thing to say and uh, trust me to come up with it but uh -oh. i think it'd be quite exciting actually to yeah. sit on the floor wouldn't it <laughs> uh, for the entire flight right i know that's, that's probably not not very good but it's an um, unusual approach you know, I, yeah <laughs> well i wouldn't have anywhere to put my my pinot grigio my, my caviar for, for one thing you know but well, you, sure you never you, yeah, yeah, i mean it's not long before it's finished anyway surely never i mean you know that's i mean right. I, don't, I don't suppose it's in your hand for very long to be fair i'd rather no, not, it, no. i'd rather than offer me the jump seat in on the flight deck to be fair i mean you know that's a seat i definitely wouldn't turn down well yeah no exactly mm. this is the thing 
So moving those on. Those were the days. <laughs> <you>? <laughs> moving yeah, exactly, yeah. Day, yeah, absolutely. So moving on to the next story, and uh, Matt, um, what happened here? Well, obviously, story number two, mm. so it must be a Ryanair story. This is on the Daily Express, so brace yourselves, everyone. Uh, hogwash is about to occur. So Ryanair passenger accidentally gets on a wrong plane. Why didn't the airline stop him? So a Ryanair passenger flying from the UK back to Poland after the holidays ended up 1,000 miles away in Malta after he accidentally boarded the wrong plane. Yet staff never said anything. Ryanair staff failed to identify a man who was getting on the wrong flight, leaving him stranded 1,000 miles away from home. Uh, Powell um, Loreniki um, was flying uh, back to Gdansk uh, in Poland earlier uh, from Leeds Bradford Airport earlier this month. However, the 75-year-old ended up erroneously getting on a plane headed for Malta. Staff did not notice he was on the wrong flight when he boarded the 6.50 a.m. flight, and he even managed to take his seat, reported the Telegraph and uh, and reported the Telegraph and Argus, whatever that is. Anyway, uh, the gentleman had no idea of the mistake he had made until he arrived and realised he couldn't get a taxi home from Malta International <laughs> Airport. A staff member was overheard telling him, I am sorry, sir, but I don't speak Polish. That's always helpful. Uh, according to the elderly gentleman, uh, the elderly passenger's 34-year-old daughter, um, Ryanair staff had checked his boarding pass when he got onto the plane, but had given no indication of his error. Fortunately, uh, he managed to fly from Malta to Gdansk later that day, thanks to staff at the at uh, is it Aviasurf? Aviasurf, yeah. Aviasurf. Uh, ups, uh, the upset daughter said her father arrived home nearly 14 hours <laughs> after he set off from the UK. Swissport, the handling agency for Ryanair at LBA, told the Telegraph and Argus that uh, we are aware that a passenger ha- was able to board an incorrect flight at Leeds Bradford Airport on Sunday the 6th of January. Hmm. Uh, the passenger had undergone all airport security screening before boarding the flight and had a valid passport which had been checked. We are investigating how this occurred and we are rebriefing all staff on procedure. We would like to apologise to the gentleman for the inconvenience caused. Express.co.uk has contacted Ryanair for comment on the incident but not replied at the time of writing. Now I think to be fair to Ryanair here, so it sounds like it was actually Swissport who were responsible um, for the error rather than Ryanair staff specifically. So. I mean, let's be honest here. He he went to an awesome destination. Oh, I, I personally, I think he got sake. on the right flight. Right. Um, because, okay. you know... That's where he wanted to be, was it? He, right. he went to the best country in, in Europe, right. personally. Okay. That's my own view. Um, right. Uh, but I, I think Nev would beg, <laughs> beg to differ there. <laughs> I don't mind. I don't mind, Malta. It's It's okay. Uh, but uh, just too many cars from the 1970s. <laughs> that adds to the uh, adds to the flavour. Yeah. But do you, when you board when you board at the airport and uh, you have your boarding card, which I think nearly all of them nowadays have uh, the barcodes mm. on the boarding, but even the ones you print out yourself at home have the barcodes on. When you go through the gate to get onto the aircraft, they scan these barcodes. You know, you, they tear off a strip, scan it, and they keep the ta- the strip, you know, as their proof of, of stuff. Mm. Surely, when they scanned this guy's bar, uh, ticket at the gate, 
would it have not flagged on the screen in front of them? Well, Bing, this is to not. be fair, it may not necessarily, again, because it depends on the airport, doesn't it? Um, mm. So at the airport he was at, there is every possibility that they may not have had the, the scanners and it was a manual mm. uh, visual check. And to be honest with you, at 10 to 7 in the morning, I'd like to think that I would be fully alert and aware of what's going on around me. Uh, but there is every possibility I might still be half asleep. Um, so I mean, to be fair, if it if it was the old style ticket and and it was just a printout that they were checking, maybe you know when you've just checked you know a hundred and something or other tickets, perhaps you know if there isn't a computer involved. I mean, I this this I think is an advert for making sure that all airports have have barcode <laughs> yeah. readers. I think that's what do you think, Armando? Any uh, any views? Of it. Yeah, no, I've actually been pretty impressed the way all the airlines and the ground crews have sort of embraced the barcodes and the technology. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I just recently I was out in Eastern Europe and that, that airport did not have the electronic barcodes. And I don't know how they were getting all those people all in, at the same time onto three different flights. So I, I could see it happen. And I, actually, I've often wondered how often does it happen? Mm. I, I think we'd be surprised, actually. I mean, because, okay, this one made the news, but, I mean, you don't know how many of these do occur, um, you know, that perhaps don't make the headlines. So moving on to the next story then, Nev, and uh, a, uh, a nice, uh, nice upgrade story for you from BA. It is, and just before we do that, I'd like to have the chocolate brownie that's on uh, Armando's menu that he was holding up. He did. It's <laughs> very tasty indeed. Look, <laughs> it's the best I could do in short notice. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm not complaining, mate. Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah, complaining. Yeah. But talking of uh, NOSH and upgrades, uh, BA re reveals uh, an upgrade to their premium premium economy service as part of the 6.5 billion pound investment in services the airline will introduce new menus from february the first including a third main meal option plus a more substantial second hot meal later in the flight this will be followed in the spring by new amenity kits quilts and pillows in the world traveler plus cabin uh, carolina martinoli ba's director of brand and customer experience says the this latest tranche of our 6.5 billion pound investment is set to improve world traveler plus and customers will see a real change to the cabin last year ba unveiled a new world traveler plus seat at gatwick featuring a 50% larger entertainment screen, as well as a six-way adjustable leg, foot and headrest. The seat will be installed on the airline's A350 aircraft when it comes into service later this year. World Traveller Plus customers can pre-order their main meal up to 24 hours uh, before departure through BA's website. I quite like World Traveller Plus, I must say, because it's not, it, obviously, it's a bit more expensive than the economy side of things, uh, but nowhere near as expensive as the business class. And actually, it's good to see they're up upgrading this part of it because it was a little bit tired, I think, on, on some of the services. So it sounds like a good thing, but uh, I had no idea they were spending quite that much money on all their services, £6.5 billion. That's uh, incredible, isn't it? I think this year in their premium economy is going to be um, a, a, a big thing. I think more and more airlines are adopting a premium economy uh, class on the long-haul air, airlines. And the prices, if you look between a lot of the airlines, are reasonable, I think, when mm, you look yeah. um, compared to economy. And obviously the level of the um, seating and obviously the level of uh, the service you get is slightly higher. And I think a lot of people will pay that extra hundred quid to you know fly long haul in in premium economy. So um, 
Yeah, perhaps we could try this out in uh, in November, Nev. With I BA. think we should in you know in in respect or of testing it out so we can report back on it on the show. Right. Okay. Definitely. I mean, if you guys could get free upgrades to premium economy for I'll your try trip, my hardest. Then that's absolutely <laughs> fine. But uh, I'm sorry, but the PTUK budget is not going to be spent on cheesy upgrades. All right. <laughs> so moving on to the next story, and uh, Armando, it's uh, an Airbus story for you this week. Yeah, this is from Reuters. Uh, Airbus spends $300 million on a new Alabama plant for the A220. Down in Mobile, Alabama, Airbus has expanded its industrial presence in the United States on Wednesday, starting construction on a new assembly plant for the Canadian-developed A220 jetliner. 18 months after agreeing to buy the plane in the midst of a U.S.-Ottawa trade dispute, which I think we covered quite a bit, didn't we? Uh, let's see, the European plane maker said it would invest $300 million and create 400 jobs in the plant to be built in the port of Mobile alongside an existing assembly line for its best-selling A320 passenger jet, which already employs 700. Uh, Alabama and the city of Mobile would provide a total of some $26 million in state and municipal incentives to support the development. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, it talks a little bit about the history between the, the Boeing and the Airbus dispute over the A220, as we call it now. And uh, let's see, the Airbus first studied the using Mobile site for a proposed tanker for the U.S. Air Force, uh, sweetening the bid to offer with an offer to build commercial freighters. But after Airbus lost out to Boeing in 2011, after a long and politically charged contest, which I think we'll talk about that later in the military segment. Mm. Uh-huh. Is this uh, a part of the U.S. you're uh, familiar with, um, Armando? Yeah, I've been to Mobile quite a bit, and uh, this is one of the, those surprising locations. I don't think anybody goes to Mobile on vacation, and it's actually a, a really nice part of the U.S. right on the Gulf of Mexico, and the Mobile Airport is a pretty big industrial airport with, I think, two runways, uh, I think they just renovated all of it, so I could uh, could certainly see it. And uh, just up the street in South Carolina, I think Boeing is producing its uh, Dreamliners. I think they're in Charleston. So the whole southeast United States is sort of just prime real estate for aircraft production right now. And the job thing as well must be it's awesome news for for you guys in the U.S. and stuff, having all these um, jobs being uh, being you know made. Yeah, absolutely. Both of those areas could uh, certainly use it. Those, they're very industrial areas. Um, so, but th- but there's been a lot of companies. You know, both of the, both of those cities are shipbuilding companies, also. So there's a lot of uh, skilled labor in the, in the areas. Yeah. So moving on to the next story, and uh, it's sad news for anyone who loves the 727, the Boeing 727. The headline, this is on the independent.co.uk website, and the headline, last Boeing 727 passenger aircraft makes its final flight. So the final Boeing 727 commercial aircraft to carry passengers has made its last flight. Operated by Iran Asman Airlines, flight EP851 did a two-hour domestic route from Zaidan to Tehran, uh, Maharabad International Airport, on Sunday the 13th of January. The jet itself was a 38-year-old Boeing 727-200 advanced and was the last to be flown as a passenger aircraft uh, with a commercial airline. Uh, journalist Babak Tarvi tweeted the video of the final flight 
about uh, writing. Echo Papa Alpha Sierra Bravo was going to be retired this evening, but was called uh, to log another flight prior to her retirement tonight. This was the world's last passenger carrying Boeing 727. Uh, the Boeing 727 model has been in service for nearly 55 years and was at one time a popular aircraft choice for many uh, a variety of airlines. The Trijet aircraft first came into service in 1963, able to fly more passengers than most competitors in narrow-body jets at higher speeds with a lower operating cost per passenger, according to the points guy. Uh, major airlines in the U.S., uh, or most of the major airlines in the U.S., had 727s as part of their fleet. More than 1,800 of the aircraft were purchased during its 20-year production run. When it stopped being made in 1984, the 727 was most widely sold commercial jet ever, a title that has since been taken by the plane's successor at the 737. The 727's use as a commercial aircraft has dwindled over the last two decades as the airlines find it much more cost-effective to fly twin-engine aircraft that use uh, less fuel efficient or use more fuel efficient air engines. Uh, however, sadly, Sunday marked its final commercial flight of the aircraft model. It's still used to transport freight though, uh, with some even used to operate charter flights or as private planes for the government of Officials. The news comes after British Airways announced it was retiring its uh, final 767. We covered that uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the first wide-bodied twin jet in November uh, last year. Now, the uh, 727, I'm lucky I've flown on that a few times in my, well, my younger years, when I was a lot younger. So uh, I've, uh, I've sampled the 727 greatness. And also, we've uh, not forgetting, we saw this uh, aircraft at Farnborough because they use this as the oil spill uh, aircraft oh, here yes. in the UK with yeah, the big boom now. on the on the yeah. tail end uh, for spraying uh, chemical um, suppressants onto oil spills on the water. So they still, I think they've got two of those in there. So it's still a very popular aircraft. What do you think, Nev? Did you have a chance, Nev, to ever uh, sample the 727? I did. I went on one. Uh, that was the Danair 727 service oh, yes. from Gatwick. Um, I can't remember where we went to actually, um, but uh, no, great aircraft. And actually, if you look at the aircraft, um, uh, when you look at it fully configured for landing, how much um, flap there is and, and <laughs> yeah. the shape of the wing yeah. is just incredible. And as a result of that, I believe that the, uh, the landing speeds are actually very slow. Um, so you can actually get in and out of quite uh, small airports. So it's a real advantage. But it was a great aircraft. A little bit noisy, certainly the first ones, but I think the uh, the latter ones had got hash kits fitted yes. to them. But, uh, Is that the age uh, again, though, perhaps? Because it's, it's an older craft. Do you think we're well, I think quite the thing so is, noisy but, but, and stuff? Well, it would, yes, but also, I mean, back in the day, uh, the um, BAC-111s, the MD-80s, oh, yes. the 727s, they were all quite noisy on takeoff, as well as the uh, 737-200s as well. Um, but, of course, you know, they were very popular uh, aircraft at the time, and that noise was kind of acceptable at the time because yeah. that's all there was. And yeah. now things have changed a great deal. Uh, people want quieter machinery. That, that along with the black plumes of smoke that used to trail behind them yeah, uh, Nev, yeah, yes. as they, as they took off. I can yeah. always remember that yeah. uh, quite fondly. Have you had uh, much experience, Armando, with the 727? I, I have. My, my dad was an airli uh, airline pilot. He used to fly for Printer, and uh, they had a, a uh, agreement with Eastern Airlines 
So when we used to, when I, I grew up in Puerto Rico and when we used to fly back to the United States, we'd always take an L-1011 from San Juan to somewhere on the southeast, usually Miami. Oh, and then he's the going to start dribbling now. You've mentioned that. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it was often a 727. And, and I remember, you know, that was the early 80s. And, and that was essentially the dawn of the jet age, the commercial jet age, like uh, Nev was saying. So, it, I mean, it, it was what it was. Yeah, I can uh, I can still remember these. I'll say Nev Dan Air. I've just it's just suddenly dawned on me where I flew the seven twenty seven, and that was to um, to Dubrovnik. Oh yes, with yeah. Dan Air. So yeah, that's uh, very fond memories indeed. Mm. So Matt, the next story. Moving on, indeed, and it's yes. um, it it's a shocking uh, story, but I think Nev's got a bit of information yes, after you've indeed. read this. Yes, yeah. he d Nev's done a bit of digging, hasn't he? Yeah. Uh, con contacted the various powers that be. This is again on the Express newspaper, obviously, which is where everybody goes for their aviation-related content. Uh, and the headline is Watch, so I'll play that in a moment. Uh, shocking moment, Ryanair plane is haphazardly prepared in a very odd way. So Ryanair flight to Stansted Airport was spotted at, uh, is it Brin Brintsy? Brins Brin Brindisi. 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 Is it? Uh, no. Um Somebody, somebody, correct me. B R I. Oh, Brindisi. Yeah, Brindisi, Brindisi Airport. Airport. It's Italy. a diver. It's one of the diversion airports. Okay, yeah. Italy being de-iced by ground staff with buckets of hot water. An alarming video captured the incident, which took place last week. The footage shows an airport employee hurrying towards a stationary Ryanair plane <laughs> with bucketfuls <laughs> of water. Uh, he takes this over two colleagues on the steps. Uh, <laughs> and uh, swaps the full bucket out for an empty one. The water is then splashed over the engine below in an attempt to get rid of ice ahead of the journey. Normally, planes should be de-iced by using specialised equipment to spray the aircraft with a heated combination of... Uh, is it... Pro pro I want to say... Pro Propylene glycol, is that right? Propylene glycol. Propylene yeah. glycol yes. and water to prevent the ice from reforming. The video uh, was posted on Facebook by Italian politician uh, and he captioned the footage saying, uh, look how they tried to de-ice the planes at this airport. Shame. Um, the airport operators were satisfied with the unusual procedure, however, reported The Sun. Uh, they, I, I do love when they, when they do this. This is the Daily <laughs> Express, and they're reporting on something that The Sun reported. Anyway, uh, they explained the guidelines. Buckets of hot water at 60 degrees are allowed when the air temperature is zero degrees. They added, the captain was aware and satisfied the procedure was to remove a little residual snow. It was per a perfectly safe procedure now uh, nev uh, you've been chatting to uh, uh, i don't i don't know whether we should be naming them so we'll just say a very good close no. friend of the show uh, and uh, yes. what did they have to say when you had a chat yeah an airline captain shall we say yeah. and uh, yeah he says it's uh, perfectly okay it's actually within their rules uh, they can do that and so it's again it's a non-story ladies and gentlemen uh, it's There's a lot a of writing uh, but uh, slightly unusual what worries me more though is those uh, french protesters getting up on the aircraft with well. their yellow jackets <laughs> I had a th I had a thought it might might have been the uh, the scout local scout group with uh, you know their kind of bobber job week where they, they sort uh, of right you know <laughs> wash wash the aircraft with some soapy water and some sponges right you know, yeah I'm I mean on those imagine, going, imagine the, yeah. the money they'd get for washing a 737 800 you know yes okay yeah <laughs> a bit um, more than a Ford Capri anyway <laughs> 
a Ford Capri. <laughs> How old are you? All right, okay. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> right, moving uh, on. And moving <laughs> swiftly on to, uh, to Nev, the, please save us. the next story. And uh, Nev, uh, we've uh, obviously chosen a, a nice little tech one for you. Uh, yes, is this the about the snow? Uh, no one. Uh, no, no. Oh, I've, 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 I've got the wrong story. How, how careless of me! That's from the uh, Telegraph. Oh, yes, it's, it's about the Wi-Fi, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. And uh, of course, it's on the Telegraph, uh, another excellent source for aviation news. Um, and it says that uh, it wasn't too long ago that Wi-Fi at thirty-five thousand feet was a pipe dream, leaving uh, technophiles frustrated and everyone else eternally grateful. But the dawn of internet access in the sky is now and well and truly behind us as more and more airlines equip their fleets with the technology. Last week, the low-cost Norwegian became the latest to announce that passengers on its long-haul flights will be able to browse the internet, send emails, and generally while away the hours from this year with half its fleet of 787 Dreamliners expected it out by 2020. Uh, the airline, which has offered Wi-Fi on its European short-haul routes uh, since 2011, claims to be the first budget carrier to introduce the service free of charge on intercontinental routes. Norwegian is far from alone. According to analysis by a travel comparison site, uh, Traveloka, uh, only 10 of the world's 50 best airlines, as ranked by Skytrax, have not yet introduced Wi-Fi on any of their planes. Says, does this mean endless nuisance phone calls? Well, it's worth noting that although one of the last vestiges of phone-free civilization has been besieged, the majority of the world's airlines still prohibit voice calls on flights. Indeed, in the US, it is the aviation regulator, the FAA, that has imposed the ban. Elsewhere, uh, airlines are free to choose what is available to their customers. So on British Airways flights, for example, the carrier uh, says that VoIP, which is uh, voice over internet protocol, are unavailable. Virgin Atlantic, however, does not permit uh, voice calls uh, with the service available on half of the airline's fleet. Neither does Emirates. So how does it work? Well, to simplify, there are two ways for an internet signal to reach your device at 35,000 feet. The first is via ground-based mobile broadband towers, which send signals up to an aircraft antenna, usually on the base of the fuselage. As you travel into different sections of the airspace, however, the plane automatically connects to signals from the nearest tower. So there is, in theory at least, no interruption to your browsing. But if you're passing over large bodies of water or particularly remote terrain, connectivity can be an issue. The second method uses satellite technology. Planes connect to satellite satellites in geostationary orbit, uh, which send and receive signals to Earth via receivers and transmitters. These are the same satellites that are used in television signals, weather forecasting and covert military operations. Maybe they shouldn't have said that. But anyway, uh, information is transmitted to and from your smartphone via an antenna on top of the uh, aircraft which connects to the closest satellite signal. Information is passed between the ground and the plane via the satellite. Wi-Fi signal is distributed to plane passengers via an onboard router. In both cases, the US is a much more developed infrastructure than anywhere else in the world. So US carriers have a better and cheaper Wi-Fi offering than those in Europe. Of course, the question everyone asks is, well, why is the Wi-Fi so slow? 
Technology is developing fast, of course, but it struggled to keep up with the sophistication and sheer number of Wi-Fi guzzling devices. Back in 2008, when in-flight broadband company GoGo, then known as Aircell, launched its first onboard Wi-Fi service on a Virgin America plane, the three megabits per second connection was adequate for a few laptops and streaming video was prohibited. But now, with every passenger toting at least one device to connect to countless apps, websites, and services, there's a much greater strain on resources. These days, a satellite connection offers around 12 megabits per second, but satellites are expensive to maintain and upgrade, so that technology is lagging behind as well. So this is always the problem, isn't it, with, with Wi-Fi, and if you're going to charge for a service, um, people are going to expect a certain level of service, and what I'm sure they're trying to avoid, which is why there's been a slow introduction, is lots of refunds and lots of people being unsatisfied with the service. So um, I is, think this is why we're, we're seeing a bit of a delay here. But I said this I said this last week, didn't I? It's like literally the very fact that you can sit in an aircraft, you are at what, 30,000 feet? Is that what sort of, what is the height normally? 35-ish. 35 35 yeah. 35 well, anything up to 39,000, 40,000 mm. feet? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So you're, all right, let's say, let's say you're 40,000 feet in the air, okay? You're in the air, you're in your air, you, you, you're flying away, you connect to the Wi-Fi that's in the thing, and you send a WhatsApp, and your friend, who is literally the other side of the world, receives it is does that not blow people's minds well we've had a few comments in the chat room um, while i've been reading that story uh tony s has said he couldn't care less about wi-fi if he's got a window seat good point yeah. good point yeah, yeah, yeah. uh jonathan warner has said that uh, if like me you get sat next to some idiot who wants to blind down all the way uh, then maybe wi-fi would be a good option good point yeah. uh neil lamborn has said it would be nice to be able to use flight radar 24 but if the trade-off is having some dom jolly style person <laughs> next to you going hello i'm on the plane then right. he's not that fussed um, okay. Chris Griggs has said that he used it for the first time uh, I could for the novelty value but not bothered since um, <coughs> Rick Bell hello to you Rick Bell uh, he said uh, I'm in the camp that it is almost a deal breaker to have uh, uh, to have or not have Wi-Fi on board not so much to tweet and browse the web but to watch a movie or a show but realistically I mean we're a long long way away from you being able to use Netflix in the air, let's be honest. I mean, short of having a remote server and sort of storing a selection of Netflix films, <laughs> I mean, you're not going to be able to do that in the air. The bandwidth required oh, is just dear. huge, isn't it? Captain uh, Captain Nick has obviously said that, um, apart from F uh, Flight Radar 24, that he, he'd love to stream our show uh, whilst uh, you know, having your Wi-Fi. R right, OK. I mean, it's I a one-way... Yeah, yeah, that, that is, yes, it did. I mean, it's also another way, you know, as I say, our, our show is officially listed as, I mean, uh, Armando, as an actual cure for insomnia by the NHS here in the UK. So, uh, Armando, you, you do plenty of flying here, there and everywhere. Is, is, it, uh, is it bothered for you? Do you care? You couldn't care less? No, I turn off. I turn everything off. Uh, that's, that's a couple hours. That's uh, just for me. So I, I generally, that's the only time I ever read a book or I'll read a pub or a manual or something like that. But I... I try not to uh, get on the internet at all. I don't even try it. I mean, I I did when 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 I went over to uh, to Pittsburgh. I did just because of the sheer novelty of the fact that a I was on a plane, uh, <laughs> and b uh, it was available, so I could and I did. Yeah. I was having this conversation yeah, with my colleagues. In that. Uh, I, 
I didn't know that there were ground, uh, sort of ground-based internet to an aircraft. That's uh, that's actually news to me. I didn't. I thought it was all satellite nowadays, but that's got to be a. I'm gonna have to look into that a little bit and see how you know if that's a 4G signal that they're beaming up because I'm mean, 30,000 feet away up there. So. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. What, were you, so, what were you saying, Nev? Sorry. I was just going to say, well, I was having a chat with my colleagues at the office the other day, and we were trying to work out what was wrong with, with various things to do with the company. And uh, we've all got these smartphones, tablets, as much internet as you want, and everything you could possibly need. And what we haven't got anymore is thinking time. And actually, a couple of hours on the plane without those sorts of distractions to just gather your thoughts about all sorts of subjects. It's a nice change to be able to do that. So actually, for me, not having Wi-Fi on the plane is absolutely no problem at all because mm. I just need to switch off sometimes, literally and metaphorically as well. Well, yeah, indeed. There is there is a lot to be said for that. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm normally pestering the the uh, crew just to chat about aviation stuff but right. that's just me <laughs> anyway moving on to the next story armando this uh, next story is uh, for you is um, amusing i will say and matt's got a few uh, bits to play <laughs> yeah hopefully you can play the video and the uh, and the pictures but uh, this is from a local news outlet abc 13 uh, out there in california this is a uh, heavy snowfall leaves a plane in tail stand at airport i think it means sitting on its tail uh down in Truckee, california uh, california the snow was so thick and heavy at an airport on wednesday that it caused an airplane to stand up on its back end the national weather service in reno says a cessna citation next was uh, surrounded by about 20 inches of so-called sierra cement uh, snow that had fallen at the airport uh, airport spokesperson mark lamb says 16 inches of snow fell overnight and added weight to the rear of the airplane, which houses the aircraft's already heavy engines. A blizzard warning had been issued for the Lake Tahoe area until about 7 a.m. Thursday, with 90 mile per hour wind gusts and between two to five feet of snow in areas 7,000 feet and uh, above sea level. And I believe Truckee is right at, the Truckee airport is at about 6,000 feet uh, MSL, so. Yeah, this is, uh, this is interesting, actually, I have a friend that works out at Truckee Airport, and I tried to reach out to her uh, just before the show started to see if she also flies a citation. I wanted to see if it was her citation. Um, she said, yeah, it should have been tied down with uh, that those kinds of wind gusts. But, uh, yeah, that's a lot of weight already on the back of the airplane. If you look at the pictures of a citation, that's, it's got a huge you know, horizontal stab, and the engines are back there. So, What do you think damage-wise, Armando? Do you think this would have caused any damage to the aircraft? It'll buff out. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> It'll buff no, I actually out, don't yeah. think. I, I would love to see some security camera uh, video of this because it was probably a very ungraceful just sort of topple back onto its backside. <laughs> so um, I, I think uh, they'll get it back in the air, no issues. Yeah, they'll be okay in this country now. I mean, yeah, we only get about five or six flakes a year. So, you know, but it'd, it'd be... Um, <laughs> unless, you were, unless you had a polystyrene kid's toy plane, you'd, you'd be absolutely fine, but... Oh, yeah, if you're out in uh, the northern climates of California, Nevada, and uh, upstate New York, and, and the northeast, yeah, I, you'll regularly get one to two feet of snow uh, in a night, and uh, it, it's not uncommon to get six feet of snow in a week. Wow. So moving on to the next story, and this one is on the 
harrietdailynews.com. And uh, the headline is Istanbul Airport to become fully operational on March the 3rd. And it's an airport we've talked about uh, in a part, few previous shows, actually. This new huge hub being uh, built, or it's been finished built in Istanbul. So the gradual shift from uh, Ataturk Airport, uh, I think that's how you pronounce it, then they've... Atatürk. Yes, Atatürk. Yeah. To the new Istanbul Airport will be complete on March the third. Uh, the general director of State Airports Administration has announced uh, we hope to conclude the gradual shift on March the third. Hereforth, all commercial flights will be from Istanbul Airport instead of Atatürk Airport. He told reporters at the opening of the duty freeze second phase, a very important part of the airport. Yes. Uh, he also expressed that the two-month test period had been prolonged after President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's inauguration on the 29th of uh, October 2018. Uh, because we did not want to move in the winter season, we decided to gradually shift until March, he said. According to the General Director, only general aviation, maintenance and repair hangars and cargo flights and expositions will be allowed to continue to operate at uh, the old airport. This was a great need and Ataturk Airport is going to meet this need, he said. Our navigation facilities will continue to operate uh, uh, and, uh, till at least 2022 and 2023, there she added as well. Uh, Istanbul Airport for those uh, for the first phase was opened on the 29th of October last year, has the potential to welcome 90 million passengers annually and following the second phase of construction uh, which is expected to be completed in 2023 that number will then rise to around 200 million passengers annually. It will provide employment for one and a half million people indirectly and will take flights uh, to 350 destinations worldwide including Africa uh, once completed. The airport has 2.5 million tons of annual annual cargo capacity and will reach 5.5 million tons when all phases are completed according to officials. And it's safe to say this is going to be one hell of an airport when it opens um, and uh, obviously a very good uh, hub to fly to to then go on to uh, other destinations rather than do one long flight but um, have you have you uh, been to Turkey yourself Nev on uh, a flight? I haven't no uh, this airport as you say is going to be absolutely enormous and strategically it's geographically placed in the perfect spot isn't yes. it? just on the edge of Europe there and a very good stopover uh, for all sorts of things I think the the key thing for the country probably is to try and make people stay there a little bit longer maybe a day or two on their way from uh, one part of the world to another uh, rather than just using the airport purely as a transit thing it'd be nice to get some people into the uh, into the city of Istanbul and spend their money there but uh, yeah it's absolutely enormous construction I've never seen anything quite like it mm. have you been to Turkey at all Armando is that a country you visit no, I've never been there. I've, it's on my list of places to visit. I, I'm I'm right there with Nev. I, you know, if you follow that uh, sort of Iceland Air uh, model of offering good long layovers, good deals on long layovers, I'd absolutely do it. I'm glad they got the most important thing done first, Matt. The duty-free uh, shops. Well, of course, you absolutely. Know, <laughs> yeah, if you're going to build an airport, these things, yeah. you've got to get those duty-free shops uh, built. I, um, I do encourage any of our. Uh, Av geeks to go on Google Earth and 
I, I just typed that airport in there, or international airport in Istanbul. There are three mass Ataturk airport is not small by any means. The new one is pretty big. And then there's another one called uh, Gorik airport or Gokan airport. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it. They're huge airports. There's three humongous airports in Istanbul. Wow. Didn't know that. You heard it here first. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the next story, Matt, uh, is uh, one for you, and this one is on the businesstraveler.com website. Yeah, indeed. So this is on the businesstraveler.com website, and the headline is Why Cathay Pacific Doesn't Fly the Airbus A380 Super Jumbo. Why don't they? Bear with me. Okay. You'll find out. Uh, a regular travellers with Cathay Pacific will no doubt be aware that amongst the aircraft in the Hong Kong flag carrier's long-haul fleet, the double-decker A380 Super Jumbo, Airbus's largest aircraft, is noticeably absent. Cathay Pacific offers six long-haul aircraft, among them the Boeing 777-200-300 and 300ER, the A330-300 and the A350-900, and, most recently, the new A350-1000. Aside from being popular amongst travellers, the A380 is also the highest capacity uh, commercial aircraft on the the market able to accommodate hundreds more passengers than Cathay Pacific's largest aircraft, the 777. It is also operated by many of the airline's major rivals, among them uh, China Southern, Emirates, Etihad, Singapore Airlines and Thai Airways, as well as a few of its fellow One World Alliance partners, noticeably British Airways, Qantas, Qatar Airways and, to an extent, Malaysia Airlines. So, why doesn't Cathay Pacific operate the world's largest aircraft? Speaking in a video as part of the airline's new You Asked Us series, uh, the uh, the passenger network manager jo Jason Choi explained that while the A380 offers a greater individual capacity than other aircraft, it's not without its drawbacks. The A380 has a lot of limitations because of its size, which can cause all sorts of complications when operating to the airports we currently fly to, said Choi. These large planes tend to have longer turnaround times. The uh, result of this is that on certain routes, using slightly smaller aircraft than the Super Jumbo can mean more round trips per day, meaning greater frequency on the route. Citing the airline's key Hong Kong to London route, which serves some 1,500 passengers, uh, Choi said that uh, we have the choice of five Boeing 777s or we can just deploy three A380s since they are larger aircraft. We prefer to offer more frequency and flexibility and therefore more choices to our customers. Cathay Pacific has also uh, been expanding the capacity of its 777 uh, fleet by moving from a more spacious 9 across configuration in its economy class cabins to the less popular 10 abreast setup. This has given the airline more economy class capacity on board its retrofitted 777s without needing to eat into the number of seats in its premium cabins. Another key factor in choosing lower density aircraft than the A380 is that they offer more room for cargo, an important part of the airline's business. After announcing the first back-to-back -back annual loss in the airline's history in March last year with its net loss for 2017 coming to more than uh, 1.25 billion Hong Kong dollars uh, in US dollars, $159 million, Cathay Pacific managed to narrow its losses for the first half of 20. 
2018 to just 263 million Hong Kong dollars. That's 33.5 million US dollars. The carrier's performance was aided in particular by strong revenue from its cargo operations, along with various cost-cutting measures as part of its three-year transformation plan. As you can imagine, the A380s carry lots more passengers and their baggage, which also means there will be relatively less space for cargo, Choi added. Now, I didn't I didn't know that that was a thing, that you quite often had cargo in as well as mm. luggage and things. I didn't realise that was a thing. It's a good way Probably. for airlines to boost their, um, yeah. their, their profit by carrying cargo underneath where we're all sitting in the uh, yeah. cabin. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. It's a part, actually, of the opera, a lot of people as well. Uh, it's a, um, with sort of um, fares going down and down all the time, they, they need to uh, keep that revenue up, and, and carrying large amounts of cargo is a, a very good revenue stream for the airlines. Yeah. yeah, yeah I, 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 that's, uh, business class, first class, and the cargo that they carry are really the, the biggest chunk of revenue for these airlines. The economy cabin is not. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I just didn't, I just didn't register it as a thing. I've got mm. to be honest. I, I, it makes perfect sense. You know, I mean, with the best will in the world. I mean, the you know, the 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 hull is not full. Um, you know, when it comes to everybody's cases and stuff like that, I, mm. I just, I just didn't, I just didn't even give it a thought. Yeah, also worth a note as well. Cathay Pacific also they've got twenty one of the uh, new triple seven Xs on order, which are going to start being delivered to the airline from twenty twenty one to twenty twenty four. So um, they'll be they'll have quite a big fleet. I mean, they've got a fleet now of a hundred and fifty aircraft, so they've got quite a large fleet. Oh. And uh, this is a bit of information for you. They were founded in 1946 uh, in September, 72 years old ago. So, um, yes, been around a while, they have. Indeed. So, moving on to the next story, Nev. Mm. It's on the Maxim.com website. um, And it says that Boeing and NASA reveal radical new transonic wing design. Mm. While flashy developments like drones and flying cars have dominated aviation news, Boeing has been quietly revamping classic aircraft design. The transonic truss-braced wing concept is a perfect example. With what the manufacturer terms a lightweight, ultra-thin and more aerodynamic wing concept, Boeing has, along with NASA, created an original wing structure that could leave other planes in the dust. Well, that's not very good, is it? (laughs) Uh, But uh, it does say that the average cruising speed for a current passenger plane is, according to Boeing, Mach 0.8 or just over 600 miles per hour. With a transonic truss-braced wing, TTBW, planes could fly fly at the same speed but at greater altitude and with more efficiency. Wind tunnel tests at NASA's Ames Research Center and almost a decade's worth of study led to the TTBW in its current form. Naturally, it all came from the joint Boeing-NASA Subsonic Ultra Green Aircraft Research Program, or SUGAR for short. How sweet. As seen in the uh, 2012 video above, I don't know if Matt's showing this to you, uh, Sugar has been at work on reconfiguring the way planes work for years, and previous designs, including the Vault, uh, a hybrid electric plane concept. 
while a jet built with the speed enhancing TTBW won't match the speed of a supersonic plane like Concorde or Boom supersonic overture, it will perhaps lead to a new line of more eco-friendly commercial aircraft. Efficiency and range expansion will mean less fuel consumption and likely reduce noise pollution in the bargain. Even better for travellers in the future, less fuel, fuel consumption may lead to lower ticket prices we can dream about it <laughs> yeah. and that's of course the thing now isn't it because obviously supersonic travel uh, we've all had it and it's been very successful for a lot of the time very expensive too um, and they're looking at ways of improving efficiency all the time and obviously with things like the dream dreamline and the a350 they've gone uh, quite a long way to in increasing aircraft range and the natural uh, the next phase is to make them fly a bit higher because the air is not as dense and therefore the engines are more efficient so yeah it'll be interesting to see what the next phase of this is but there's clearly a lot of research going on mm, yeah it's rather interesting do you, think, do you think we'll ever reach a, a point where we we are seeing uh, in the same way that you know i mean people like volvo and things are talking about making only making um, you know, electric cars uh, in the future. Do you think there'll be a time where we just see electric planes? I mean, I don't think we'll see not, it in our lifetime. Well, not in our lifetime, no. Um, I think the thing is, it's the same problem with the car, isn't it? It's range, mm. and mm. it's all about that kind of thing, and and how much you've got to pay initially. So if you look at electric cars today, they are expensive to buy. And, um, Very true. You yeah. can't just sort of stop off for a for a bit of a top up no. uh, halfway across the Atlantic. Myla makes a very good point in the chat room actually that uh, the Cessna has a strut underneath the wing like that too, which right. is very true because okay. the Cessna does have a strut right. like underneath the wing. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 are you are you essentially comparing a Cessna to, <laughs> to a Boeing 777? <laughs> no, that, that's, yeah. that's our lovely Myla in the chat room. Right. How, that. Many, how many of the concepts are actually the same? Mm. Yeah, true. True. Mind you, I'd love to see a Cessna with engines like that hanging under. Right. <laughs> yeah. So yes, I know on uh, <laughs> on the electric uh, propulsion uh, point, there we'll probably see it in general aviation, maybe corporate aviation first yeah. for a good number of years. I know Magnus Aircraft and Siemens have uh, partnered up. I saw them down in uh, the Aero Expo at Friedrichshafen, um, so they had a pretty good setup, and I, I think they had a a little stumble. A couple months ago, with one of their uh, sort of test aircraft, but I, I think we'll see it in general aviation first before we see it in uh, commercial aviation. Yeah, you, mm. you think? Yeah. yeah. So the next story, Armando, is um, a bit of a dimmable story for you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, this is from uh, Aerospace Manufacturing or Aeromag.com, um, which is uh, the new Boeing Triple Seven X to offer Gentex dimmable windows. So the Gentex Corporation is a global supplier of electrically, electronically dimmable windows, or EDWs, for the aerospace industry. And they've announced that its latest generation of dimmable aircraft windows will be offered as an optional uh, content to the new Boeing 777X. So EDWs are a electro, I thought it was electrochromatic, but it's electrochromic-based sunlight and heat control solu solution that eliminates the need for traditional window shades and lessens the dependence on AC air, or air conditioning systems. Or no, sorry, is actually, Nev, jump in. Is it air conditioning systems or AC systems? Well, we'll see. I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm yeah, uh, yes, I, I think you're right, actually. 
before. Yeah, EDWs allow passengers to selectively darken aircraft windows as desired while still enabling them to view the scenery outside. The 777X program will be the first to utilize Gentex's latest EDW technology, capable of eliminating more than 99.999% of visible light at twice the darkening speed of previous windows. I think the Dreamliner has those, the electrochromatic ones. Hmm. Um, the 777X system will be designed with a centralized control, allowing the flight crew to set specific lighting scenarios for day or night uh, flight without ever reaching over passengers to open or close those mechanical shades. Let's see the uh, Steve Downing, the president of Gentex, to be a continued partner with Boeing as we look to expand and improve our dimmable glass product offerings. With careful design collaboration with Boeing, our teams have developed a robust EDW system that easily integrates to the airframe for optimal control, aesthetics, performance, and reliability. It goes on a little bit to, to talk about how... I've, tr I've tried these. On, I, I had a go with these with the Dreamliner when we flew on uh, BA's one, and they're not without i mean the ones on the dreamliner they're not without their glitches yeah slightly slight issues but um so my, my understanding is now that this works nev correct me if i'm wrong but this this system works where it basically passes a current through the glass doesn't it and that's how it, it it's it's the electric yes. current being passed through the glasses how it reacts and darkens according to it's something like that. Yeah, isn't we, it? yeah, we we've used it in in you know the AV world for for many years, uh, sort of shop windows yeah. and uh, retail environments and, and and that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, it comes to something when you when they're sort of servicing the mm. aircraft or whatever it is, and they go, oh yeah, we've got to do a, a firmware update on the windows. It's, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's as you do, taking <laughs> it to a new level. Isn't and, it? and for once, we're not talking about Microsoft products, which is a refreshing no, change. But and, anyway, uh, yeah. that's no bad thing. Let me tell you. Yeah, <laughs> moving on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so indeed. the so the last story um, in the commercial news segment this week, uh, it's one that uh, was actually pointed out to me this afternoon by our Mr. Neville Bounds, and uh, right. well done for that, Nev. So Matt, it's a story about uh, your your favourite airline. Favourite airline. Here we go. Yes. Okay. So this is uh, on the Guardian newspaper, and it says Ryanair issues profit warnings as winter fares. Ball. So Ryanair has issued its second profit warning in four months, blaming intense competition over the winter that prompted the Irish budget airline to cut fares. Profits for the year ending 31st of March will only be 100 million euros. That's uh, uh, sorry, it will be 100. Let me read the story properly. Profits for the year ending the 31st of March will be 100 million euros. That's 88 million pounds lower than previous previous expectations Ouch. at between 1 billion to 1.1 billion euros the company said in a statement to the stock market that was down from 1.1 billion euros to 1.2 billion euros range previously expected now forgive me here for not feeling too sorry for Mr. O'Leary, but he still essentially made over a billion euros worth of profit. So I don't think we need to be worrying about Ryanair folding anytime soon. No, no. 
Um, but uh, Ryanair's chief executive, uh, Michael O'Leary, this is always a, a treat for the listener, said that he was disappointed to cut the company's profit guidance and said the airline could be forced to further reduce fares and guidance. We cannot rule out further cuts to airfares and or slightly lower full year guidance if there are unexpected Brexit or security developments which adversely impact yields between now and the end of March. Ryanair shares fell 5% after the profit warning, which was the result of lower than expected airfares in the second half of the company's financial year, which includes the Christmas holiday period. Average fares from November onwards fell by 7%, considerably lower than the 2% fall in the company that the company had expected. Ryanair previously issued a warning over profits back in October after it suffered a summer of disruption and flight cancellations as cabin crew uh, based in Spain, Belgium, the Netherlands, Portugal, Italy and Germany went on strike. It was forced to cut hundreds of flights in August and September. O'Leary is betting that Ryanair can benefit from the medium term from a larger share of the market as other budget competitors struggle. The outspoken chief executive has previously said he expects more airlines to go bust and certainly from news that we've been hearing this week actually uh, that that is very much on the cards isn't it Nev I think with a, with a, with a few. Um, yes there's, there's lots lots of things going on in yeah. the aviation world Indeed. at the moment shall we say yeah. uh, but more shockingly is that we went for one hour and seven minutes before the Brexit world. <laughs> that is a good point, actually. Yes, that's a good point. Well made. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, apologies, by the way, to those watching on YouTube. We are having some lighting issues in our studio here, which will be dealt with in our uh, uh, annual general meeting uh, on Saturday tomorrow. But mm. uh, yes, so apologies. Thrashing and P forty five being handed. Indeed, out, yeah. absolutely. So apologies <laughs> for the lighting issues here in the studio tonight. Now, actually, so, as we're on the subject of uh, uh, still in the commercial segment, although we've finished, um, uh, we, yeah. we did receive some feedback didn't we, we did because you remember last week we were talking about oh sorry we we're talking about bad pa systems thank, on thank aircraft you. <laughs> <laughs> you know those you know those horrible pa systems that you that, that mm. uh, they have on some aircraft where the 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 flight crew sound more like um well bees stuck in a, a bees, rather right. uh, hollow <laughs> plant pot okay um so matt yes. what what happened we got some feedback yeah well i now now the thing is is it's literally arrived hot off the presses <gasps> so um the, the the long and the short is and he's trying to press multiple buttons here because he's picked <laughs> he's picked i'm really I, Morning. I i need to i need to go back to, to button pressing school don't i i'm really not doing very well here but we received uh, some last minute feedback that came from a certain <gasps> old Ooh. curmudgeon Hi there boys, Captain Nick here. So you don't think the Airbus PA system is up to snuff, is that right? I must warn you that people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, so let's have a quick look at it and perhaps you will have a little more sympathy. Let's start with the input end of things. The microphones, and I'm just dealing with the pilot side of things to start with. We can talk about the cabin equipment in a mo. The pilot has four microphones available to him. Left to right on the captain's side, that includes the mic built into the oxygen mask, a large and good quality hand mic, a headset mic, and on the uh, end of the center console, a telephone-style handset, which is actually part of the cabin communication system, so I'll leave that for a moment. 
The other three mics feed into the audio management unit, which each pilot can control and set their own audio needs through an audio control panel, or ACP. Imagine the ACP as a tiny mixer unit. It controls 16 audio input channels and all their volumes, allowing the selection and setting of three VHF, two HF radios, an interphone system that connects the pilot to the ground crew in the nose wheel well and a multitude of other jack points around the aircraft such as near doors on the engines and such and a separate cabin interphone system that connects into the telephones at each of the cabin crew stations. That's just on the top line. The second row of controls sets audio for the navigation equipment the ILS markers, two VORs and two ADS. You can also mix in two satellite telephone inputs and finally the one you hate apparently, the PA system. It also has individually selectable torque controls for all the radios and the two interphone systems, the two sat phone systems and the PA. It performs other functions like allowing separate interphone talk between the pilots, a press to talk transmit switch, a cell call reset, not important right now, and a voice filter for the navigation beacons. That's quite some little box and it's only about six inches by four inches big. What's more, there are four of them on the flight deck, allowing individual mixing of audio and mic feeds for any of the four occupants, the two pilots and two observers. Above the pilots' heads is an ancillary panel with call buttons for all the interphone stations, such as the mechanic, the crew rest areas and each of the cabin phone locations. For us to hear what's going on, we can use either the headset, the loudspeakers or both. So we can mix the 16 audio feeds and listen to them all or just the ones we want and we can individually control all their levels. When we talk the ACP will direct the audio signal correctly to one of the five chosen radios, the mechanics interphone system, the cabin crew interphone system, one of the two satellite phones or the PA. That's just some of the variables. Let's not forget that each observer has a transmit switch and the pilots have two. You were talking about the passenger address system. The PA system has inputs from each of the cabin crew stations using their interphone handsets, from each station on the flight deck, all four of them, from the pilot's position using either their oxygen mask, their headset or hand mic, or the interphone handset located on the end of the center console. That's a total of around 14 inputs just for the PA, remembering that most of those inputs are multifunctional. Because the pilots only sit a couple of feet away from their loudspeakers, there's also a muting circuit built into their audio inputs to prevent acoustic feedback by attenuating the signal. So, when making a PA to the passengers, the pilot has several options. Let's not hope he is using his oxygen mask or things will have gone badly wrong. Usually he uses either his headset, his hand mic, a little complicated as that needs the pressing of two buttons simultaneously, or the interphone handset on the end of the center console.
I'm not even going to go into what happens within the cabin as when the pilot speaks the audio goes simultaneously to the loudspeakers, even the ones in the loos, and the entertainment system for those wearing headsets, pausing whatever movie they are watching. The volume must be preset, so there is never any danger of audio being accidentally muted. So, why doesn't it sound perfect every time? Well, being the audio wizards you are, I expect both Nav and Matt can already see some of the problems. This is a hugely complicated audio setup with a multitude of inputs. It has to convert the audio from analog to digital and back again. It has to compete with a range of background noises, from the relative quiet during boarding to the sound of the air passing the aircraft at several hundred knots, plus the roar of the engines at full power, which for those seated behind the wing is impressively loud. Now you guys use professional mixing desks, and even with all your experience, you can occasionally get things wrong. The levels might not be balanced properly, something might not quite be on the right channel or whatever. The system in an aircraft has to work on normal power, reduced power and even, in the case of a serious emergency, on battery power alone. It has to do it automatically and without failing, as it is a vital system of communication. The backup are loud hailers, and we don't really want to go there. Being on an aircraft, it has to be lightweight and also pretty foolproof. And here comes the crunch. When you hear a poor PA audio, I don't think it's actually the aircraft. We test it throughout the entire aircraft before every flight. The weak link in the chain is probably the person making the PA. The cabin crew have the advantage of hearing their PAs as they make them, so there really isn't any excuse for them. They all use the interphone handsets, which don't have great microphones, but I suspect they have built-in pop filters and a reasonably sized condenser. The pilots, on the other hand, can't hear what their voice sounds like, as we have that big old cockpit door firmly shut. We can hear what comes through our headsets or the loudspeakers, but since those have individual level controls, it doesn't tell us really what's going on in the cabin. Some pilots use the headset mic, which is a micro-condenser, and would have started with a foam cover, but the second pilot to use that headset would probably have binned it, as who wants to swap spit with the previous pilot? They must very quickly become a hotbed of microbes, and they need to be very close to the mouth to get good levels. There's no doubt that the headset mic produces pretty lousy audio, with a lot of breath sounds and distortion. It's okay for the radio, but awful when it's amplified up and shot out into the cabin. An alternative is the hand mic. This is a nice microphone and would work well, but it needs two hands to use it uh, when using it on the PA channel. The left hand holds the mic and presses the transmit switch, whilst the right hand presses and holds the PA transmit channel button, which must be held down. 
It's better now with LED lights behind that switch, but in the old days it would burn the end of your finger, which hurt like the devil, but did keep those who liked the sound of their own voice down to a short announcement. For me, the best option is the handset on the centre console. It connects directly to the PA system, has a good-sized diaphragm and a nice pop filter. It can certainly produce good audio when used properly. So I hope that helps explain the problems. Training in the use of the PA equipment is down to the airline, who will usually do little or nothing, and not everyone is confident and blessed with a good speaking voice. I, for one, don't often have a problem. With my big booming voice, I don't actually need the PA system at all. Anyway, keep up the good work, chaps, and perhaps one day you'll get somewhere near our famous 50% accuracy rating. Best regards, <laughs> Captain Nick. Well, there we are. I think that's Jeff. I think that's us officially told off. It has to be said. Uh, can I just can I just say one of the funniest uh, comments that came in the chat room here? Armando, you're a very naughty boy. This uh, is in the Mad Dog. Uh, the FO has to come back and deliver each message personally to each passenger. Uh, with Richard Adams chipping in that that has to be done on parchment scrolls, which I think is uh, a little unfair. Uh, but uh, uh, yes, uh, Nev, uh, your thoughts on uh, that analysis by the legendary Sir Captain of Nick. <laughs> this is a sock. Uh, and that's what the audio sounded like. No, I'm just. <laughs> I think Nick has. He's such a such a good. <laughs> he comes up with lots of information that I certainly didn't know, and I had no yeah. idea about the number of audio sources. Uh, yeah. that was available to him, which I think he said was sixteen. Yeah, some like stupid um, number. Yeah. However, um, I would like to Ooh. know who, and whilst I do concede that there are, you know, uh, mic techniques yes. that need to be yes. taught during the training and all the rest of it, I still think that the speakers in yes. most aircraft that I have ever flown in are a bit ropey. Yeah. Um, and But I also concede that the audio route to get to them is a bit complicated and it's very difficult to monitor it mm. as well yeah. um, but it's um it's a safety critical part of the journey yeah and we're always told about how we should be listening mm. to the pas how we should be listening to the safety briefing if it's on a video and that's all great but could we just have some better quality please yeah. Indeed, this is uh, Armando's done it again. By the way, in I the know. chat room here, oh, he's saying, he said now? Yeah, in the Mad Dog, every seat has a teletype printer receiving messages from the bridge. I mean, flight deck. Uh, <laughs> Auntie Liz has quite rightly pointed out that you guys wear a Jeff and Dana to defend their ride, seeing as we are uh, busy slagging off the Mad Dog. But uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, I'm with you, Nev. Actually, I tell you what, all I, I, all, I, the, all the way through that that feedback, the chat room is just full of yeah, yeah. fantastic. Banter. Uh, yeah, indeed. I will say. That, that's a word. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. Yes, rope. Ro right. Yeah, okay. Captain Nick has said ropey speakers, ropey ears. <gasps> oh, that's a, that a low blow. <laughs> oh, anyway, should we move on before we get sued? So <laughs> that 
brings the commercial segment Indeed, to yes. a close. So coming up next then, we've had a segment sent in to us from Pilot Pip. Uh, so uh, in this particular segment, Pip tells us about his busy flying schedule along with uh, some of the countries he's flown into in 2018. Pip also tells us uh, about his most visited airport while flying with safe jets. And it's coming up right now. Plane safety from the flight deck with pilot Pip. Hi everyone, it's Pip here with another of my segments. Yes, I know you're probably getting sick to death of all these segments I keep sending in to Plane Talking UK. Well, here's another one, especially for the new year. So let me start off by wishing you all a very happy 2019. I hope your 2018 was pretty awesome. Uh, mine wasn't too bad. And it's my 2018 that I want to talk about. I was going through my logbook the other day, just jotting down some stats and working out how many miles I'd flown, and uh, thought maybe I might tell you about that. So, of course, 2018 was my first full year on the new aircraft, on the Embraer 505, a.k.a. the Phenom, a.k.a. the Lemon. And I've got to say, it's I do miss the Hawker still, after a year and a bit on. I'm missing the Hawker, I'm missing the destinations. I'm missing the uh, extra legroom. You know, the Phenom's a little bit on the small side, but, well, still getting used to it. Uh, but it has been a very busy year. Probably one of my busiest in the 11 that I've been at uh, Safe Jets. And it kind of looked like this. So for between the 1st of January and the 31st of December 2018, I made... 286 individual flights at Safe Jets Europe. If you can hear any aircraft noise in the background, by the way, I'm just sitting up in an office at Stansted. So there's uh, Ryanairs and whatnots taking off just uh, a few hundred meters away from me. So you can probably hear that in the background. A little bit of an ambience for you. So anyway, 286 flights, um, which totaled around about I haven't got the exact figure in front of me, I'm afraid. I totaled about 450 hours of flying time, which um, depends on your viewpoint. It's either quite a lot, and it's quite a lot for me, but if you're someone like a, a pilot at Ryanair or some other low-cost EasyJet or even maybe Owl at... at uh, oh, excuse me, <laughs> at uh, Acme Pink. Sorry, Owl. Um, then you're probably laughing at that number, 450-odd hours. You're probably, or maybe even crying, as I say. It depends on your viewpoint. Your average airline guy is probably working double that, maybe even a little bit more. So to them, it may seem like I'm working just part-time hours. Other, you know, other guys like to fly a lot. But 450 hours is pretty, uh, pretty respectable, actually. It's, uh, you know, not being too busy, but enough to, uh, yeah, enough to be respectable. But that's flying hours, block hours. If you have a look at my total duty hours over the year, you know, the time I'm effectively on the job. So, you know, flying, doing other stuff on the ground, preparing for flights, closing down flights. Then actually, it's probably not that too dissimilar to a, a guy at Ryanair or any other airline. Because for those guys, they probably do yeah, three or four flights a day, maybe five flights. But they do have very quick 
turnarounds. They're typically maybe doing 30 minutes between each flight. Whereas for me at SafeJets, just because of the, the nature of our business and the flexibility that we need to build into our flying schedule, our turnarounds and show times in the mornings tend to be much, much longer. Uh, so typically the shortest uh, turnaround for a, a revenue flight, you know, a flight with passengers on board would be 90 minutes. Uh, we can sometimes reduce that down to an hour and 15, uh, but typically it's 90 minutes. So if you think of doing four flights in a day with 90 minutes between each one of them, then, you know, that starts to rack up the duty hours quite a lot. So while the flying hours might be half of what an airline guy does, the duty hours are probably about the same. So, you know, it all comes out in the wash, as they say. So over 286 flights in 2018, I covered according to my calculations, 126,341 miles as measured by Great Circle routes. So just over a quarter of a million miles flown for me, um, which isn't too bad for someone doing exclusively short, short haul. Uh, you know, back on the Hawker, I was doing a bit of a mix of short and long, uh, excuse me, short and medium haul but uh, not on the Phenom it's, it's pretty well 100% short haul you know I'm not going out to the Middle East like I used to I don't really do too much into Africa anymore and I certainly don't head out into Russia anymore either um, my Russian visa is in fact has expired now so I, I don't go there so typically most flights are around about 90 minutes probably if I average them all out 90 minute flight sectors a lot of quite shorter ones and a, a small smattering of a longer flights over three hours. Uh, my longest flight in distance was 1,364 nautical miles, and that was from Kiruna, which is up in the north end of, uh, I think it's Sweden, uh, down to Bratislava in Central Europe, so a little under 1,500 miles for that. And then my shortest flight in terms of great circle distance was uh, 12 miles. And in fact, I've got a couple of those from Biggin Hill to London City and probably a few other uh, transits around London, uh, North Alt to Luton, something like that. So a couple of very, very short ones as well, and they tend to be quite good fun. Uh, and over those 286 flights, I managed to visit, fly into uh, 129 different airports, which is great. That's what that's probably one of the most fun things about doing the type of flying that I do is the huge variety of airports that we go to. Now your typical guy at BA or maybe Captain Nick at, at oh god I did it again, at Acme Red, uh, they maybe fly to a, a fairly small handful of destinations, maybe a few dozen, maybe even less for a small airline. Uh, so for me to go to well over 100, 129 different airports is quite good fun. You know, it really keeps things fresh, something different every single day. Um, now, you know, there's some airports that we do tend to go to quite a lot. And my number one most frequently Hello. visited airport last year was uh, Paris, Paris Le Bourget. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I went there probably, I don't know, several dozen times, 30, 40 times perhaps. And then uh, London as a city is probably my most frequently visited city because obviously London has five or six uh, airports that we use. Um, one or two that stand out from last year, uh, quite early on, I think it was back in February perhaps, I had a lovely day in Ouerzazat. Ouerzazat, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but it's deep down in southern Morocco. A really fascinating place. Never been there before and haven't been there since, but uh, a lovely flight 
uh, over the Atlas Mountains, down deep into the desert and into this this little oasis out in the out in the desert. And we got to spend a, a, a whole day there. Spent the night, then most of the day next day, in this fabulous little town, way out in the desert. A fascinating place. We had a lovely meal. We we visited some of the uh, the souks and did a bit of bartering with the local traders. And it's a well-known, although you may not know it, you may well recognise it from a lot of movies. If ever there's a, a deserty scene needs to be filmed in a movie, then they quite often go to this town, Awurzazat, uh, because there's a big movie studios there with lots of sets. Uh, so they do a lot of filming there. So you, you may have seen it before. I think they filmed some scenes from Gladiator out there. And it's not just me, of course, being busy. I'm one of... Um, around about 600 pilots that we employ at Safe Jets Europe. I can't remember the exact figure off the top of my head. It's around about 600. So, you know, we're a sort of medium-sized airline. We operate just under 100 individual aircraft. And our 2019 as a company looked something like this. We flew uh, 74,284 passengers. Um, so, you know, compared to big airlines, uh, our passenger numbers are very, very small. But the number of flights uh, isn't too bad. I think we flew around about 60,000 flights, maybe a little bit less than that, 60,000 flights last year, which is a pretty decent number. I suspect it's more than someone like uh, Acme Red, who, while they fly a lot of passengers, don't do quite so many flights. Uh, and we as a company, Safe Jets Europe, we flew a grand total of miles, 14,007,660 miles last year. So that's a pretty big number, isn't it? And I quickly worked it out earlier. Um, as a percentage of those 14 million miles, I flew about 0.8% of them. Uh, as a company, we flew to 729 different destinations last year, 729 cities or 729 airports. And that's a huge number. That's really where we stand out in the aviation community. We just fly absolutely everywhere, all over the world, every continent, uh, pretty much every country, every city, uh, we tend to go there. Uh, breaking that down a little more, just looking at the Phenom fleet uh, particularly, of those, what did I say, 60-odd thousand flights, we flew, I think, about 10,000 of them. So um, quite a, a high proportion of those flights all down to us we tend to work harder than everyone else of course we got the the Phenom fleets we've got the Excel fleet the Citation Excel that's um, I think they've got about 30 aircraft then we've got the Challenger 350s we've got the Falcon 2000s uh, then we're onto the long-range fleets which is the Global 6000s and the Gulfstream 550s um, and as a fleet, Paris Le Bourget was our most visited, 466 flights uh, into Le Bourget. Uh, Farnborough was the second most popular with 368, according to the stats I've got here. And here's a good figure, our dispatch reliability, so you know how many of those flights did we successfully dispatch without breaking down or you know any, um, any technical issues was 99.4%. So nearly 100% of those flights we were on, we dispatched, uh, dispatched successfully for, which is a great number and, and far higher, interestingly, than they had figured on when they first introduced the fleet. 
you know, they have a some sort of figure in mind, aircraft breakdown, some are more reliable than others, and they, you know, they plan the flying schedule around the fact that a certain number of flights will uh, go tech. And I don't know exactly what they planned on for, for the Fenham fleet, but it certainly wasn't uh, 0.6% less than 100%. So we've done phenomenally well uh, in that regard. So it's been a really great year. It's a very reliable aeroplane. Uh, honestly, in the year that I've been flying it now, I can't really think of, of anything that's you know technically gone wrong. One or two very minor system failures that we've dealt with in the air, but uh, it's a, a really very reliable aircraft. Anyway, I'm kind of running out of figures here. Uh, I hope 2019 is going to be just as interesting and, and just as challenging, and I'm hoping to visit some more uh, some more new places. I'm certainly hoping to visit some nice sunny places over the over the coming months. Maybe some Greek islands. One of my favourite places, Ibiza, Mallorca. Hmm. Looking forward to the summer. I've had enough of the winter already. And I hope it's going to be a successful and exciting year for all of you as well. So that's where I'm going to bring it to an end. Wishing you all the very best and, of course, safe flying. Bye. And his first segment of 2019. Well done, Pip. Thanks for that, as yeah. always. Always nice to hear where Pip's been going in and around Europe and stuff in his uh, in the lemon. <laughs> right, yeah, that's a word for that, yes, indeed. So don't forget, uh, Pip is over at the Plane Safety Podcast. Uh, he's just actually released um, a new episode of the Plane Safety mm, Podcast, yes, yeah. uh, episode number 57. And it's, mm. I'll tell you what, it's a good, because it's the, the part three mm. of uh, the how we got here thing. It's been quite right. interesting to yep. hear just how Pip and Al okay. got to where they are now. Very cool. It so yeah, worth a listen. Worth yeah. a listen, definitely. So up next, then it's some military news. So if everyone's ready, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> why not? <laughs> just, just, just throw it out there, Carlos. Why don't you blow me? Okay, up? I expected more preamble, but anyway, oh, I'm ready now. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> So kicking off this week's first news story, it is uh, the the guy who's going to um, do lots of things military for us with the news. It's Armando. So uh, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Carlos. Uh, yeah, the military news is kind of interesting. It's uh, hard curating because uh, there's no social media out there. And uh, sometimes the news uh, just doesn't pick up on some of the trends, the industry trends. So I'll do my best over the next couple months. Please but do. the first story is uh, from Breaking Defense. Uh, dot com and it is about the air force's kc-46 new tanker so while the uh, the air force has accepted delivery of the first kc-46 today boeing could face a total of 4.5 billion dollars in cost overruns and withheld payments on the initial 4.9 billion dollar contract for 52 kc-46 tankers so depending on what happens as the company tries to fix the plane's remote vision system. So how does that work, you might ask? Boeing has already spent more than $3 billion of its own money getting the KC-46 started. And the Air Force announced today as it accepted the delivery of the first one, some 17 months late, that it may withhold up to $28 million 
per plane until Boeing fixes the crucial remote vision system. Uh, it's a setup of sensors and cameras which allows the boom operator to connect the tanker to the plane that it that needs gas. Um, however, the Rockwell Collins system doesn't work well in certain light conditions. So the Air Force is saying that there are operational workarounds for the light conditions, but that's exactly what they are, just workarounds. The service believes it will take Boeing three to four years to fix the RVS. So a Tiger team, which is what we call uh, sort of a continuous process improvement team. Uh, from Boeing and the Air Force worked on the RVS and developed nine critical parameters. Those must be met or the Air Force reserves the right to withhold the $28 million per airplane. So in the meantime, Air Force officials say the plane offers capabilities such as casualty evacuation, rapid offload of fuel to virtually all US combat aircraft using either a boom or a drogue system, which is more survivable than the current fleet and most importantly, is not an antique. The average age of the KC-10 and KC-135 fleets is about 50 years, which is why the service accepted delivery of the first plane, which Boeing considers a huge milestone. Uh, in addition to the RVS, there is a need to redesign the boom on the KC-46 so it can refuel the venerable A-10 Warthog. When the contract was originally awarded, the Air Force used the internationally accepted standard of 1,400 pounds of pressure for the boom uh, as it meets the refueling aircraft, but the A-10 only develops 650 pounds. Since this is, in effect, a new requirement, the Air Force will eat the cost of resigning the boom. So what is next? Uh, four KC-46s will be delivered to McConnell Air Force Base. That's in uh, Missouri, I believe. And followed by four to Oklahoma's Altus Air Force Base. And this summer, the Air Force officials expect Boeing to hit a delivery rate of three to four aircraft each month. So there you go. Boeing is going to eat the costs of development for now and hopes that the Air Force continues its order of uh, 179 airplanes. Yeah, because these are based, aren't they, uh, Amanda, on the uh, 767, these cases. 767, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. Does the um, Osprey, Armando, is there a lot of air-to-air refueling go on with that particular uh, it does. It actually uses a um, a drogue system similar to most other helicopters and some of the Navy aircraft. So, and that was something unique. So, a KC-135 has to be fitted with one or the other. Not every aircraft is fitted with a a boom and a drogue. Some, you know, it, the the KC-46. Well, yeah, it's it's delayed a little bit. Um, it's it's a much more capable aircraft. They're new. They're rolling off the the assembly line, the technology, yeah, this one system is is not quite there yet. But overall, the airframe, like like they said, I mean, the the KC-135s are 707s essentially. So exactly, but worth a lot because them aircraft have lasted quite a long while. The uh, 135s, and we still see them in the air uh, over here in East Anglia mm, as well, yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. So yeah, next. Next story is uh, on the defensenews.com website, and uh, its uh, headline is UK Defence Chief F-35 Jets Are Ready for Operations. So Britain has declared initial operating capability on its F-35B Lightning fighter fleet, an announcement made by Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson during a January the 10th visit to the aircraft's new base. 
Williamson also took the opportunity to confirm the successful culmination of a $540 million program to upgrade the Royal Air Force's Eurofighter Typhoon fleet with Storm Shadow cruise missiles, the Meteor air-to-air -air missile and the Brimstone ground attack weapon. The incredible F-35 jets are ready for operations. A transformed typhoon has the power to dominate the skies into the 2040s. And we continue to look even further into an ambitious future, the Defence Secretary said. The British have nine of the short takeoff and vertical landing versions of the F-35 ready for overseas deployment, said Williamson. He was speaking inside a new maintenance hangar that's part of a $700 million investment the Ministry of Defence is making at RAF Marham here in the UK, the main base for the Lockheed Martin built fleets of jets. 16 F-35B aircraft have been delivered to the British and are currently based in the UK and the United States. The government ordered a further 17 fighters late last year for delivery between 2020 and 2022, and the British have said they will buy 48 jets to meet immediate requirements for a joint Royal Air Force, Royal Navy Force, and have committed to buying a total of 138 aircraft, though officials have given only a vague timeline. The Royal Navy began flight trials uh, of the aircraft from the deck of its new 65,000-ton aircraft carrier, HMS Queen Elizabeth, uh, last year. Work has been underway for some time in the Ministry over whether part of the future orders for the Lightning II should include a batch of F-35A types for the Royal Air Force, with the F-35Bs being earmarked just for the Royal Navy service. Um, the first tranche of 48 aircraft will be the F-35B, which will be jointly operated by the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy, capable of operating from both land and the Queen Elizabeth aircraft carriers. Decisions on subsequent tranches of the Lightning will be taken at the appropriate time, he said. Uh, Howard Wielden, a commentator on the defence aviation sector here, said the possible mix of F-35As and B variants was one of the items the government still needed to study to ensure a credible F-35 force. They need to set out a clear strategy, uh, he said, as opposed to a mere definition of intent in respect to required cap uh, capacity in numbers and requirement for both the A and B variants. How many UK-owned B variants do we really need for carrier strike? And we will see the US Marine Corps aircraft permanently based on UK carriers, he said. The US Marines are expected to fly their own F-35Bs from the deck of the British carrier in early deployments, in part because the Royal Navy will have insufficient numbers of its own aircraft until the numbers build up. And the story goes on, but it's nice to, uh, to know that, that these uh, are, you know, going to be actively used now in operations uh, to uh, obviously ward off the Russians, I reckon. Mm, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah, busy flirting with other orders. Have you, have you, have you been up uh, close and personal with one of these uh, yet, uh, Armando? I have not. I don't have a lot of experience with fighter aircraft, actually. So I see them flying around. I've, I've seen them uh, both in the U.S. and the U.K. They're amazing when they're doing their, their demonstrations, but I have not yet seen one up close. And well, perhaps we'll uh, we'll get a chance to see one at the air shows this year. So yeah, because we're going to hopefully do Riyadh, aren't we? Yes, we are. Riyadh. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. So uh, the uh, last story here, uh, Nev. Uh, do you want to take this one? Yeah, it's on the uh, UK Defence Journal .org .uk, and it says that uh, 656 Squadron, uh, 4 Regiment Army Air Corps and their Apache helicopters are taking part in exercise clockwork at Bardufoss in Norway, say the British Army. 
The army says that the Apaches are flying alongside the Wildcat Battlefield Reconnaissance Helicopters of the Commando Helicopter Force, learning how to operate together in some of the harshest weather conditions. Training in the Arctic builds on the Apaches' battle-winning abilities that have already been proved on combat operations and in the maritime and uh, desert environments. A key role for 4 Regiment AAC is to maintain a force of Apaches on standby to provide an aviation strike capability to the Royal Marines of 3 Commando Brigade, the British military's extreme cold weather warfare specialists. The UK currently operates a modified version of the Apache Longbow, the Apache AH-1, Westland-built 67 WH sorry, WAH-64 Apaches under license from Boeing following a competition between the Eurocopter Tiger and the Apache for the British Army's new attack helicopter in 1995. Important deviations made by Augusta Westland from the US Apache variants include changing to more powerful Rolls-Royce engines and the addition of a folding blade assembly for use on naval ships. In 2016, the UK Ministry of Defence confirmed a US foreign military sale worth $2.3 billion for 50 AH-64Es to be built in Arizona. Leonardo Helicopters in the UK is to maintain the current fleet of Apaches until 2023 to 2024, with a long-term plan for Leonardo and other UK companies to do most of the work on the new fleet. The deal includes an initial support contract for maintenance of the new helicopters, along with spare parts and training simulators for UK pilots. The first UK helicopters are due off the US production line in early 2020 and will begin entering services service with the British Army in 2022. That's some, a lot of work coming up for mm. uh, our folks here which is good news indeed and uh, often this uh, yeah we do a lot of work with the Norwegians and all sorts of things for cold weather operations out there so that's uh, yeah good to hear that yeah, we, we see a lot of the Apache around here actually somebody's got one haven't they nearby oh RAF Watersham yeah no they, no no, um... no no there's there's one that's that quite often comes to I'm sure it's an Apache isn't that what comes and lands at Beckles quite a lot and then goes and flies No that's around. that's the boys from Watersham. Oh is it? Yeah yeah okay. they um yeah I'd like actually like any any of the guys from RAF Watersham watching I'd just mm. like to thank you for another great show this week uh, <laughs> on uh, Monday uh, over Beckles uh, mm. it was uh, nice to see you guys um I think they were chasing each other there's two Apache uh, AH64s um doing uh, doing <laughs> I look like they're doing burnouts in the sky really having, yeah definitely having fun but um do you get to see many of these uh armando where you are uh yeah we work we work closely with them the uh especially back in the united states but uh i, I will say the norwegians are amazing to work with they're an incredible military and they're incredibly friendly and they're very good at what they do and it's uh i've been up to norway and on some of these exercises well well north of the arctic circle and I, I'm glad to see that the Apaches are going up there because it's not just about how to fly in those conditions, right? Almost every aircraft has cold weather procedures, but it's about the ground crews. It's about how to just get to the aircraft uh, if you need to get to the aircraft quickly. Uh, in the case of Americans, you know, you got a bunch of guys from, like in the article, from Arizona and Florida that are trying to drive on on ice in northern Norway <laughs> just to get out to the airplane. So. The whole exercise of going up to northern Norway to uh, train is incredibly important, 
and I'm glad to see that's happening mm. with the Apaches. Excellent. So that's where we bring some military news to a close. So, um, well, we're going to start to wrap things up, I suppose, guys, aren't we? But uh, any uh, any more last-minute news bits and pieces from anyone at all for the show this week? No, not to, no. I, I want to lie down in a darkened room after <laughs> this, this week. Thank you very much. It's uh, the stress levels have been through the roof throughout most of today's show. Oh, and a big uh, thanks to Myla for the photo that we've oh, got yeah, behind us here yeah. tonight on the show. For those of you, there we go. I'm it's her, it's on her baby. There, that's, yeah. I think she she sits. Uh, Hold on, where are we? You're good oh, at this, Carlos. Oh, yeah, there, really oh, good. Hold yeah. On. No. What are you doing? <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah, there. This works there. really well on a uh, audio-based podcast. Thanks for that, Carlos. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and for those of you who do listen to the show in audio version, uh, if you want to see what craziness goes on in the uh, studio, do take yourselves over Don't to bother, YouTube seriously, just <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to see the show uh, broadcast with visuals. It seems a lot more. It seems a lot more seamless if you listen it to the does, audio version. Yeah. Nothing ever seems to go wrong. <laughs> it's, the, it's the three days of editing Matt does after each quite, show. Quite, quite. <laughs> yes. So that is where we're going to start to wrap up episode number 252 of the show then. And don't forget to uh, send us your pictures uh, to the email address you, yes. uh, podcast at plaintalkinguk.com mm-hmm. and you can have your picture on the wall behind me and Matt here on yes. the wonderful green screen we now yes. have. So yeah, yes. send your pictures in there. And don't forget to check out the website. Matt has been busy. It's not finished yet. Don't get started. But it looks nice. It's getting there. It's getting there, yeah. It looks nice, but Matt has yeah. been playing. And we've got. A, I've got. A, I've a got a style that I'm happy with, so I should. I yes. should build on that. So yeah. But no, thanks for sorting that out, Matt. It's, yeah, uh, very well, good. Thank you when it's done. And also, a big thanks to Matt as well because Matt's uh, busy. Been busy doing my own website as well for uh, for my disco stuff. So thanks to you, Matt, for that because yes, that looks right. we'll awesome as well. Yeah. So good, good on you. Uh, so uh, take yourselves over to allaws.plaintalkinguk.com if you want to have a look at the new website. Matt's showing it on the screen there for those of you watching in YouTube world. Uh, and send us, don't forget to send your feedback into the show because we'd love to hear from all you guys and girls as to what's, uh, what you've been doing in the worlds of aviation. Uh, Nev, uh, any exciting plans for you? Apart from obviously our big PTUK annual board meeting tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, oh yes, I'm looking forward to that. I can tell you, I'm particularly looking forward to uh, a meal in the evening. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love a curry. I love. I thought a it curry. was KFC we're having. No. Oh, oh. Sh- oh. sorry. Be quiet. How dare you? No, we're not. We're not doing. We're not going to the curry place now uh, due to operational uh, circumstances. But don't worry, uh, we've got somewhere lined up just as nice. Okay. All right then. I'll so Armando, have... what's uh, what's on the agenda for you? Uh, busy for you, by You're busy. Uh, actually, not a whole lot. I'll be here in uh, southern Germany working on this project for the next couple months. Uh, it's kind of nice uh, being away, and uh, the skiing is beautiful, and the oh, city dear. is beautiful, and the food is uh, is great. It'll make it'll make me have to run a little bit further with uh, with all the schnitzel and the sauerkraut and everything. So. <laughs> Break it up and the German yeah. beer. Yeah, is, is the beer good uh, over yeah. there? Is it good beer? Oh my gosh, it's delicious! <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gone wrong. Any place you walk into, you can't go wrong. Just ordering uh, any any beer. So, suddenly, wow. I, suddenly, I want to go out and join Armando <laughs> for, a, for a bit of a, yeah, oh. for one weekend. We should have a weekend popover. Right? I was going to say have have yeah. the PTK board meeting in in Germany. Yeah, yes, just for yeah, a change. Let's do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you up for that, Nev? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <I'll> do. <laughs> you go, go on. That. Yeah, jump jump on a quick BA flight somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, so, what about you, Matt? Busy week next week. Uh, do you know Coaching what? around the I, world. 
my details were, were given to me and I actually forgot to look at them, so I could be going anywhere this week. I literally have no idea. Oh, a nice little London then for you. Oh. <laughs> well, I just realised I'm going to Edinburgh on uh, <gasps> Scotland. Tuesday. Oh, get you. Yeah. Uh, which will be a bit chilly, I, I think. think. Yeah. So I'm going I, to may I recommend your outside coat for that one? Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, so, uh, yes, I'm going up on uh, Tuesday, coming back on Wednesday. What's so the uh, chosen there. carriage, Nev? Oh, it'll be a, a British Airways uh, A320 yeah. or A319, I would imagine. Uh, it used to be yeah. a 767 in the old days, but of course yeah. that's all, really all finished now. Armando, what's the weather like at the moment where, where you are? I mean, you were saying you were skiing and stuff, so I presume there's a bit of snow on the ground. Yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of snow. It's just above freezing, but generally the Danes are pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's fresh little, but uh, nice weather. Yeah. He's, he can ski. I mean, that's just a, a achievement in itself. Is there anything? That's the only slightly. I mean, it's all very. You know, I'm delighted to have him as part of our our regular team now. But I'm beginning to feel a little <laughs> inadequate as a human being. I mean, he does cute things like take his now wife to you know. Paris, Paris to like yeah. sort of you know propose. I mean, it's just like that. Us us normals have no hope, do we? Really. <sighs> <laughs> Uh, I don't even have a quippy comeback to that. Right, no, fair enough. <laughs> so, anyway, it's time to wrap up. And apparently, up, according to the BBC, it's now snowing in Leeds. Mm. Right, okay. So there we go. You heard it here first. <laughs> Thanks for that. So that <laughs> is where we are going to bring episode number 252 to a close. A huge thanks to everyone who's joined us in the YouTube chat room tonight for the show. Big thanks to all you guys. And not forgetting as well, everyone who downloads the show as an audio version through all the wonderful podcasty type downloady web app things. <laughs> In the world. So thanks wow. to everyone who does that. You're and right, forget, yeah, Carlos. <laughs> and don't forget, if you do download the show through iTunes, don't quite know why you would. It's an Apple-related <gasps> thing. Oi, but if you do, <laughs> please leave us uh, a little uh, bit of feedback. Sort of about there, feedback <laughs> on there. We'd appreciate that. Helps to He's uh, going to have a shock the tomorrow. There, there is every, every single Everything thing is in this Apple channel is, is Apple. <laughs> oh, God. It's going to be a real nightmare for you tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Gemma's got an iPhone. Right. Okay. So, Good. Yeah. I'm glad we had this little chat. <laughs> so that's it then, guys and girls. Join us again next Friday for another fun-packed show. And, uh, well, from me, Carlos, here in the PTUK studio, have a safe and well weekend and enjoy yourselves in whatever you do. And take care and uh, goodbye. <laughs> And uh, from me here, it is in, uh, it's, uh, everybody. It is time to say goodbye. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>